Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this criminal's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, violence, mutilation, dismemberment, and beheading that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a beautiful summer evening, July 13, 1793, a 24-year-old woman with an angelic face and unassuming demeanor knocked on the door of Jean-Paul Marat's home in Paris. Paris was in the middle of the French Revolution, and its two main political groups, the Girondists and the Jacobins, were at each other's throats, literally. The Jacobins were beheading their enemies daily with the infamous guillotine. Though the Jacobins and Girondists were both pro-revolution, anti-monarchy, the Jacobins felt the Girondists were traitorous moderates whose advocation for nonviolence would stop the revolution from achieving its goals. So, the Jacobins waged war on the Girondists. On this evening, the young woman had something she wanted to share with Marat, who was one of the Jacobin leaders. She had a list of names of known Girondists to give him, a list of names to put on the execution list. The woman was almost turned away at the door, but Marat, who was bathing in a nearby room, heard her mention her list. Thirsty for Girondist blood, he welcomed her inside. She joined him in the room where he was bathing and revealed her secrets. Marat read her list of names and proclaimed, their heads shall fall within a fortnight. And that's when the young, unassuming woman pulled a knife out of her bodice and stabbed Marat in the chest, dealing him a fatal wound. Blood dripped from Marat's wound and onto the list, which held his assassin's name, Charlotte Corday. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye, 
And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're talking about one of the French Revolution's most renowned political martyrs, Charlotte Corday. At her wit's end with the violence in France, she felt there was only one way to stop it, by killing violent Jacobin leader Jean-Paul Marat. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Charlotte Corday was in her early 20s during the French Revolution in the late 1700s, Descended from a noble but poor family who sent her to a convent for seven years, Charlotte believed in peaceful change and liberation. She was a Girondist sympathizer who killed a rival Jacobin leader in order to restore France to peace. In part one, we'll take a look at Charlotte's upbringing, her philosophical beliefs, and what led her to believe she could save the world. In part two, we'll follow Charlotte on her journey to kill Jean-Paul Marat, the aftermath of her actions, and her untimely execution by guillotine. Let them eat cake. This is one of the most well-known examples of monarchical excess and out-of-touch leadership spoken by Marie Antoinette during the French Revolution. The revolution began in July 1789. There's debate amongst historians about when exactly it ended, but it was either in 1795, with the establishment of a new constitution, or in 1799, with Napoleon Bonaparte's coup and rise to power. Before the revolution, throughout the 1700s, France's weather, economic makeup, and population had all been changing. According to the online educational resource Alpha History, the country's population increased by 40%, over 8 million people in the 80 years between 1700 and 1780. But... Its agricultural productivity had not kept pace with its population growth. France was struggling with drought, cold winters, and other weather conditions that made farming difficult. In 1788, three-quarters of the country was struggling with drought. According to Alpha History, at this time, agriculture made up around 75% of France's domestic economy and around 70% of France's land use. Farmers owned around 40% of the land, while the nobility, the middle class, and the church owned the remaining 60%. They would rent that land out to lower-income farmers. It's important to mention that there were three social classes in France at this time. The first estate included the high clergyman, the second estate included nobility, and the third estate was made up of the rest of the French population, the commoners. Most common farmers leased their land from people in the first and second estates. While farmers were struggling to grow enough crops, the landowners were still living comfortably, collecting rent from the farmers. This led to an unequal distribution of wealth between the classes. According to Alpha History, quote, In 1788, an unskilled laborer in Paris had spent around half of his daily wages on bread. In the spring of 1789, he was spending between 70 and 90 percent, end quote. Unfortunately, this unequal distribution of wealth and economic struggle was something that plagued Charlotte Corday throughout her life. On July 27, 1768, 
Charlotte was born Marianne Charlotte de Corday d'Armont in Normandy, France. Only her family called her Marie. Everyone else called her Charlotte. Her family was technically noble, having been awarded nobility in 1077. Her father, Jacques-Francois's family, owned a lot of land in the French countryside. However, France had primogeniture laws that stated only the oldest son could inherit land. Jacques-Francois was the third son and therefore got nothing. He had to purchase his own small amount of farmland and couldn't make a very good living from it. Charlotte's family was poor and constantly struggled. Her father spent his life fighting against this primogeniture law, publishing pamphlets and speaking out against it. After all, it was this law that led to his family's financial struggles. Charlotte inherited her father's outspokenness. From a young age, she would argue if she didn't agree with something she heard. She was intelligent, independent, articulate, and courageous. She wasn't afraid to disagree with her elders, sometimes even questioning priests in church. Charlotte was the fourth of five children. She had two older brothers and two sisters. In France, as in much of the world, women were meant to marry, have children, and serve men. So Charlotte's parents put their focus on making sure Charlotte's brothers were educated. They sent them to school so they could train to become military officers. This didn't leave any money for Charlotte or her sisters to get a traditional education. Though Charlotte's family was very poor, Jacques-Francois was a charitable man who was always looking out for his neighbors and family members. In the book Charlotte Corday, author Michael Corday says, The Cordays were poor, but the poor never knew it. Just as she took after her father in attitude, Charlotte also took after him in her charitable personality. She would read to younger village children and teach them to sew. She would even bring them sweet treats, which no doubt would have been rare for a girl like her to get her hands on. Charlotte learned to read at a young age and loved it. She and her sisters learned to work on the farm, pick fruit, cook, and bake. Their mother taught them how to sew and do housework. She also taught them about French history and religion. Charlotte loved the countryside where she grew up. Her childhood was full of open fields and outdoor games she and her sisters invented. Charlotte befriended young and old alike, becoming close with her extended family servants as well as local children. She was serious, responsible, and caring. Eventually, though, Charlotte's boundless happiness would come to an end. It became too much financially for her parents to support all five children. So when Charlotte was roughly 10 years old, she went to live with her uncle. Charlotte's uncle was a clergy member in charge of a chapel and abbey in Vic, France. He lived in the same province as Charlotte's parents, but she was mainly under his care. Sending Charlotte away during her formative years may have had an impact on the person she would become. We can compare the psychology of Charlotte's situation to that of boarding school students. Before we jump into the psychology, just a quick disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. British psychotherapist Nick Duffel and psychoanalyst Joy Shavirian have done in-depth studies on what they call boarding school syndrome. Through their studies, they have discovered that adults who were sent away to school as children often experience intimacy issues, self-reliance, high moral values, obsessive behavior, and a need for control. Though these traits didn't cause Charlotte any behavioral problems growing up, 
they worked their way into her psyche. Self-reliance, high moral values, obsessive behavior, and a need for control are all personality traits that may have pushed her to assassinate Marat later in her life. She said she decided to kill Marat because she felt killing him was the only way to end the violence in France. That simple explanation encompasses all of those personality traits. That need for control pushed her to take control of the situation when no one else would. During the terrible years of Jacobin violence, Charlotte couldn't control who lived or died. But with the death of Marat, she did just that. While Duffel and Shaverian studies focus on children who are sent to boarding schools where they have no family, Charlotte's situation was a bit different. She adored her uncle and had known him before moving in with him. He, like her, was fond of reading and learning. And it just so happened this love of literature ran in the family. Charlotte's great-grandfather was 17th-century French playwright Pierre Corneille, famous for his tragedies. He often wrote about love, heroism, and politics. Charlotte's uncle shared these stories with her. In his book, Mad Men of History, David D. Hook notes some Corneille quotes that may have inspired the way Charlotte lived her life. Two such quotes are, To conquer without risk is to triumph without glory. And, Do your duty and leave the rest to heaven. Charlotte began to form her own life philosophy as a preteen with the help of Corneille and her uncle. Her uncle sometimes got frustrated with the way she would question everything he taught her. According to the book Charlotte Corday, her uncle said, quote, She disputed everything inch by inch and never gave in, end quote. But despite his frustration with her, they had a good relationship. Charlotte lived with her uncle for three years before returning home to help her mother with the household when she was 13. Shortly after returning home, in 1782, Charlotte and her family moved to the city of Caen in northern France, roughly 50 miles from Normandy. After three years of being close to her uncle, Charlotte was now forced to move away from him. And in the 1700s, 50 miles was a lot of ground to cover. Someone would have to pay to hire a coach, and the coach could take half a day to travel 50 miles. Traveling required money and resources that Charlotte's family just didn't have. It's likely that she didn't see her uncle much after the move. According to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, moving can cause stress and depression in children. The older a child gets, the more likely she is to be psychologically affected by a move. Prepubescent and adolescent ages are the most difficult times for a child to move. At 14, Charlotte would have fallen right into this time frame. Though the move away from her uncle was likely tough on Charlotte, she remained intelligent, kind, and proper. However, another big change happened after the move to Caen. When Charlotte was 14 or 15 years old, her older sister died. Sibling death hasn't been as extensively studied in psychology as the death of a parent. However, losing a sibling can be just as traumatic. According to a 2016 study by Jan Louise Godfrey and Roger Cook from the Swinburne University of Technology, teens who lose a sibling may have their grief overlooked. As parents deal with their own loss, they often forget their living child is dealing with just as much grief. As a result, the surviving teens are likely to develop stress, anxiety, and depression. As if losing her sister wasn't bad enough, months later, tragedy struck again. 
Charlotte's mother died giving birth to her sixth child. The baby also died. According to Dr. Patrick Arbor, director of the Center for Elderly Suicide Prevention at the Institute on Aging in San Francisco, quote, After the loss of a loved one, symptoms of depression usually last for up to two months, end quote. Charlotte would barely have had time to cope with the loss of her sister before her mother's death. And she had to keep her grief wrapped up tightly inside her. As the now oldest woman of the house, Charlotte had to take up the role of head of household at just 15 years old. In her book, Motherless Daughters, The Legacy of Loss, Hope Edelman notes that there's a strong correlation between girls who lose their mothers and a sense of independence or self-reliance. Edelman says, quote, her vehement independence and self-assertion can become both self-protective and exclusionary, setting her apart from her peers and frequently alienating her from other women, end quote. In other words, Charlotte could have been forced to grow up too soon, which may have been damaging to her psyche as she aged. That's right. According to Edelman, losing a mother during adolescence can stunt normal developmental tasks, including, quote, dealing with authority figures, learning to live with ambivalence and ambiguity, learning to manage emotion, and developing a personal value system, end quote. Charlotte may have been thrust into a situation where she bypassed these important developmental stages and went into adulthood never truly having developed these traits. She was put in charge of taking care of her father, two brothers, and her remaining sister, Eleanor. She looked after the home for almost two years. When she was 17, in 1785, Charlotte's father sent her and Eleanor to a convent called Abbaye Adam to be educated. Charlotte's aunt was a nun there. Normally, the convent didn't take in girls who weren't training to be nuns. However, their connection through their aunt, as well as their father's noble status and charity work, seemed to be enough to earn them each a spot. Charlotte loved the convent's library. There, she began reading works by Greek writer Plutarch and French philosophers Rousseau and Voltaire. Plutarch wrote often about heroes sacrificing themselves for the greater good. According to the website Reconnaissance.org, Plutarch's greatest hero was Marcus Junius Brutus, who murdered Caesar in the Senate in an attempt to save the Republic. There are parallels between this story and Charlotte's attempt to save France through the assassination she later committed. She also took a thing or two from French philosophers Rousseau and Voltaire. Rousseau's general philosophy is that people are born good, but are corrupted by the evilness in society. Voltaire believed in civil rights and an equal balance of power. Though we know these philosophers as historical figures integral to the Western canon, when Charlotte was a teen, they were still alive and working. Voltaire began writing around 1730, and Rousseau in the mid-1700s. Both men died in 1778, only seven years before Charlotte discovered their work. The philosophy of Rousseau and Voltaire inspired many people who would later join the Jacobins and Girondists alike during the French Revolution. Funnily enough, according to philosopher Stephen Hicks, Jean Pomerat, Charlotte's eventual target, wanted to, quote, live simply and according to the precepts of Rousseau, end quote, with quotes like, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains, the revolutionaries would take Rousseau's work as a call to action. Charlotte also lived her life in accordance with the philosophies she read about. She yearned for equality, justice, and change. 
But as a young, poor woman, she wasn't in a position to bring social change to France. She would still be at the convent when the French Revolution broke out in four short years, giving her the opportunity to become the hero of her own story. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to female criminals. In 1787, after Charlotte Corday and her sister Eleanor had been studying at the convent for roughly two years, the nuns began giving 19-year-old Charlotte some of the day-to-day duties of running the convent. She did the shopping and communicating with local tradesmen. This got Charlotte out into the community and allowed her to meet new people. She was likely exposed to local conversations, concerns, and politics. Since 1774, when Charlotte was just six years old, France had been ruled by the ostentatious young King Louis XVI and his wife, Queen Marie Antoinette. France had given aid and military assistance to the United States during the American Revolution. All that fighting, combined with the king and queen's lavish spending, led the country to the edge of bankruptcy by the 1780s. The king and queen were clueless about the plights of the commoners. Poor harvests, high food prices, increasing land taxes, and decreasing income were everyday problems for the members of France's third estate. When they saw that none of this phased the royals, they grew angry. And as they made up 98% of France's population, it would have been smart for the royals to take their problems more seriously. All of this eventually led to the French Revolution when the third estate decided to rebel. In 1789, King Louis was in too far over his head trying to deal with France's bankruptcy and his subjects' unrest. Hoping for some ideas, he got representatives from all three estates together for a vote on May 5th. There were roughly 600 third estate members and 300 from each of the first and second estates. The last time this estates general had assembled was in 1614, more than 150 years earlier. Each estate was given one vote. However, since the third estate was made up of around 98% of France's population, they understandably wanted more of a say in their country's future than the nobles and the priests had. The third estate felt like they weren't being heard. So on June 17th, the delegates from the third estate, calling themselves the National Assembly, met in secret at a nearby tennis court. They took the tennis court oath, vowing to work together until they could establish a new constitution that would satisfy everyone. Louis XVI responded to the National Assembly by organizing his army and placing them outside his residence, the Palace of Versailles. At this time, there was no reason for Louis to believe the National Assembly was violent. The members of the National Assembly were offended by Louis' actions. It was further proof that they would never get what they wanted, as long as Louis was king. So, on July 14, 1789, they stormed the Bastille, a medieval fortress and prison, to steal weapons that were stored there. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Bastille to the Revolution or to the people of France. Every July 14th, the French celebrate Bastille Day, which commemorates the day that the Bastille prison in Paris was stormed by angry crowds in 1789. And it was that event that sparked off the French Revolution and eventually led France to uh, get rid of its monarchy. The revolution was plowing ahead at full speed. 
1789, at age 21, Charlotte was at the convent in Caen during all of this political turmoil. She was nearly 150 miles from Paris, and news of the growing revolution took a few days to reach her town. Even though Charlotte was technically a member of the Second Estate, the nobles, she was instantly on board with the revolution. It fit neatly with all of the philosophical ideas she had absorbed throughout her education. Most of the nuns at the convent didn't support the revolution, but Charlotte's work in town allowed her to meet fellow sympathizers. One of these sympathizers was a young man named Gustave Dulcet de Pontecoulant. He was a count who had renounced his noble title when the revolution began in order to take action with the National Assembly. According to author Michael Corday in his book, Charlotte Corday, Gustave was probably one of the first nobles to renounce his title. The two of them may have met through Gustave's aunt, the abbess of the convent, and he and Charlotte became friendly. However, in 1789, it wasn't as common or easy for a young woman and a young man to be friends as it is now. They probably spoke in passing rather than forming a very deep relationship. He would keep her informed about the movement that was heating up back in Paris. There, members of the Third Estate had formed a political group called the Jacobins. They believed in equality and wanted to put control of the country entirely into the hands of the commoners. However, they were extreme and would often incite violence in their members. One such instance of violence happened in the summer of 1789, and 21-year-old Charlotte was forced to bear witness to it. Count Henri de Belzance, who was related to the previous abbess at the convent, had traveled to Caen. He was a supporter of the monarchy. Though people at the convent didn't support the revolution, people in the town of Caen very much did. Belzance would ride through town on horseback and pull out his gun to threaten the townspeople or scare them into siding with the monarchists. On June 29th, Belzance saw a young boy celebrating the news that the nobility and clergy had decided to join in the revolution. Belzance hurt the boy. A crowd tried to fight him, but he pulled out his gun and started shooting at people. Understandably, he made many enemies that day. Belzance continued to assault townspeople during his time in Cannes. There were rumors he was starving the town by sending most of their crops to Paris. On August 12th, a mob brutally attacked him. According to the book Charlotte Corday, the mob literally ripped him to shreds. They cut open his chest with scissors, grabbed his heart, cut off his head and hands, put his insides on pitchforks, and marched his body parts to the abbey, believing his relative was still the abbess there. Since the sacking of the Bastille a month earlier, vicious mobs had displayed heads of their murder victims on sticks, sometimes marching around town with them. But this seemed exceptionally gruesome. Charlotte, her sister Eleanor, and the other young women at the convent witnessed this horrific scene. According to psychologist Seth J. Gillihan, people who witness violence can develop post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. PTSD can cause nightmares, fear, anxiety, and anger. Today, PTSD is most often discussed in connection with soldiers returning from war. But anyone who witnesses violence or death can experience it. Psychology writer Eric G. Wilson puts a different spin on the psychology of witnessing gruesome events. He claims that these events can sometimes inspire empathy. 
For Charlotte, who was already an empathetic person, witnessing this tragedy could have instilled a sense of guilt that pushed her to want to save people from this incredible violence. Empathy is usually seen as a positive thing, but it can be negative. Social science researcher Carla McLaren, who devotes her time to studying empathy, says there's such a thing as being too empathetic. A person who can't control her empathy may put herself in danger. McLaren says, quote, If your empathy is unintentional and unhealthy, you can lose track of yourself and your needs. You may also focus so intensely on others that you approach a kind of martyrdom where you make yourself entirely responsible for the welfare of others, end quote. We can see this sense of martyrdom in Charlotte's decision to assassinate Marat. That's right. And with the continuing violence of the revolution, it's likely those feelings weighed heavier and heavier on Charlotte. On top of witnessing violence, Charlotte was also experiencing other big changes. In 1790, all monasteries and convents were closed down. As the Jacobins began denouncing religion, specifically Catholicism. According to Jacobin Magazine, a current American leftist publication named for the French Jacobins, before the revolution had begun, quote, the Catholic Church controlled by some estimates 8% of total private wealth, end quote. And as we mentioned before, the church was given a one-third vote in politics, but they only made up about 0.5% of the population. The Jacobins didn't see a way for everyone to be equal while the church controlled and influenced so much of France. The church aligned with the nobles because both of these groups were collecting land taxes from the commoners. The revolutionaries believed the church was becoming corrupt. And as the church had a history of voting against the greater good, the Jacobins decided to disband religion completely. Charlotte and Eleanor were allowed to stay at the convent until April 1791, though they likely weren't learning anymore. Their father now lived back in the countryside, and they moved back in with him. While Charlotte had loved the country so much when she was a child, she soon found it stifling and too far removed from what was happening with the revolution. Additionally, one of her brothers had emigrated, one was in the military, and her father was still struggling financially. She ached to get back to the city, and she wanted to take some of the financial burden off of her father. So she moved back to Caen in the summer of 1791. She was around 23 at this time. Charlotte moved in with her older cousin, Madame de Bretville, who had just lost her husband and father and had inherited a small bit of wealth. She was 67, 44 years older than Charlotte. She was more like an aunt than a cousin, and Charlotte bonded with her immediately. They were both fans of Corneille's work, and Madame de Bretville had a daughter who had died a few years earlier. They both needed each other's company. According to author Hope Edelman in Motherless Daughters, women who have lost their mothers often look for a surrogate motherly figure. Edelman writes, quote, The logical first place for a daughter to seek a mother substitute is within her extended family, end quote. Perhaps Charlotte's much older cousin filled a role that she had been missing for so long. Back in the city, Charlotte began to learn about the Girondists, an alternative group to the violent Jacobins. They had originally been Jacobins, but parted ways with them as the Jacobins grew more extreme. The Girondists believed in revolution, freedom, and equality, but they were more moderate. They wanted to achieve their goals without violence. 
The Girondists were popular in small country towns, and the Jacobins were heavily supported in Paris. The Girondists disagreed with how the Jacobins were operating, and the Jacobins felt the Girondists were trying to interfere with the revolution. This made them enemies. But Charlotte sided with the Girondists and began meeting friends who did too. Her cousin hired a 25-year-old man named Augustin Leclerc to manage her inheritance. He was intelligent and into politics and philosophy, just as Charlotte was. They spent time talking, updating each other on the latest news. Another of Charlotte's new friends was Hippolyte bougon Langray, the general secretary of Calvados, who would share news with Charlotte and give her pamphlets and materials from the Girondists. There's been a lot of speculation about whether Charlotte was in love with Leclerc, bougon Langray, or her old friend, Gustave Dulcet. However, Charlotte had made up her mind as a young woman that she would not get married. According to the book, Charlotte Corday, she's quoted as saying, You will never put Madame on my letters. I shall never give up my beloved liberty. Never shall any man be my master. She'd had several men propose to her, and she'd turned them all down. Although marrying a wealthier man could have helped Charlotte rise above her station, she wasn't interested. She was a woman ahead of her time. According to the book Charlotte Corday, Charlotte seemed to be oblivious of self and interested only in the fate of others. But being selfless and socially aware wasn't easy. There was more pain to come in Charlotte's life. Pain that she could trace back only to one person, Jean-Paul Marat, the man she would eventually kill. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now, our story continues. It was the autumn of 1791. Charlotte Corday was living in Caen, France, with her cousin, becoming as involved in the Girondist's French Revolution as a young woman could be. But every day, it seemed the Jacobins were doing some new, awful thing. The Girondists were the majority of the Legislative Assembly, which was now working on drawing up laws and a new constitution for France. But the Jacobins were louder than the Girondists, and they had many Parisians backing them. The main leaders of the Jacobins were Maximilien de Robespierre, Camille Desmoulins, Georges Danton, and Jean-Paul Marat. Robespierre is perhaps the most famous French Revolution figurehead. He was a lawyer who was elected to the National Assembly way back in 1789, and he became head of the Jacobin Club in 1790. Camille Desmoulins was a journalist who was anti-monarchy. He wanted France to be a republic and heavily influenced the Jacobin ideals they would work into the Constitution. George Danton was an anti-monarchy lawyer who was elected president of the political group, the Cordelier District, who played a big role in the sacking of the Bastille. He later joined the Jacobins and called for King Louis's abdication. Finally, Jean-Paul Marat. Marat was a doctor and political journalist. He was born in Switzerland, but had lived in Paris since he was a teenager. During the onset of the revolution, he started his own newspaper called The Friend of the People. In the newspaper, Marat shared his radical beliefs, and his voice was heard loud and clear throughout Paris. Marat was a member of the Montagnards, the most extreme offshoot of the Jacobins. The Montagnards were the group who were most opposed to the Girondists. These men all belonged to the Legislative Assembly, 
which drew up a new constitution on September 3, 1791. But this constitution would keep King Louis in power as a figurehead, giving him the right to appoint his own ministers. This wasn't good enough for the extreme Jacobins. They began calling for a new constitution. Some of the Jacobins even wanted to arrest the king. Around this time was when the Jacobin violence started to escalate. On November 5, 1791, in Caen, a group of people attempted to hold mass. Holding mass was illegal at this time, due to the disillusion of religion. Both pro-religion and anti-religion people gathered, and a fight broke out. More than 80 people who supported the priest were arrested. Clergy members were also arrested in a nearby town, and some of their family members were tortured and later died. Charlotte and her family were religious. This attack was likely a big blow to her morale. She also had a few friends who were among the 80 arrested that day. They were taken to Abbaye Prison in Paris. During this time, many trials led to execution, so the stakes were very high. The chosen method of execution in Paris was the guillotine, which was used for the first time in March 1792, and would be used tens of thousands of times more before the revolution was over. The wooden, bladed weapon was used to cut off the heads of criminals. It was invented in 1789 by Dr. Joseph Ignès Guillotine. Believe it or not, Guillotine wanted to create a more humane way of executing people. The speed and sharpness of the blade were supposed to make death quicker and less painful than previous forms of execution, like hanging or burning. By the end of his life, Guillotine was horrified by what his weapon had been used to do, and begged for his name to be removed from the device. But, of course, it stayed. Like so many executions, beheadings were public events. Adults and children alike would gather in the square to see the guillotine at work. Vendors would even sell guillotine toys for children to play with. That sounds pretty morbid. Morbid and possibly psychologically damaging. Public executions were popular around the world during this time. According to several studies, witnessing repeated executions can cause depression, emotional detachment, and nightmares in spectators. According to Psychology Today, in a 1992 study of California journalists who witnessed an execution, they, quote, experienced acute stress reactions, including profound anxiety, time disorientation, and distance from emotions, end quote. Basically, it doesn't matter if the person being executed is guilty of a heinous crime or not. The brain still reacts to killing as killing, a traumatic act for anyone involved. Much more death and destruction would continue to impact the French. On April 14, 1792, France declared war on Austria and Prussia. The Legislative Assembly was afraid that other monarchies would step in to try to give King Louis back his absolute power and the Girondists wanted to spread their revolutionary goals throughout France and Europe via war. The war lasted throughout the summer, creating more loss and poverty for the French. On August 9th, radical Jacobins overthrew the monarchy and finally arrested King Louis and Marie Antoinette. The Girondists supported the arrest and wanted to keep the royals imprisoned, but the Jacobins wanted to execute both of them. For the time being, the Girondists got their wish, but the Jacobins felt the Girondists were standing in the way of their progress, so they decided to eliminate the entire Girondist group. 
On August 24th, Jean-Paul Marat published an article in his newspaper about the dangers of the clergyman and Girondists being held prisoner in the Abbaye jail. Marat incited public fear that these political prisoners would rise up against the Jacobins and take over Paris. He wrote that the only hope for revolutionary freedom was to, quote, advance on the Abbaye armed, pull out the traitors, and run them through with swords, end quote. Nine days later, on September 2nd, 1792, the Jacobins took action to do just that. A group of imprisoned priests were being taken to Abbey Prison when they were attacked by a mob of Jacobins and killed. Over the next four days, mobs broke into several prisons around Paris and killed prisoners, a total of roughly 1,200 people. These events would come to be known as the September Massacres and would go on for five days. Charlotte suffered heartbreak once again, as she had friends who were imprisoned and killed by the mobs. Other Jacobin leaders, including Robespierre and Danton, felt that Marat and the extremist Montagnards had gone too far. Robespierre, Danton, and the Girondists all blamed Marat for the September massacres. 1792 carried on with more violent acts, as Paris was caught between revolution and foreign war. In late September, the monarchy was overthrown, and the French Republic was born. In December, King Louis was put on trial for treason, and in January 1793, he was executed by guillotine. Charlotte disagreed with killing the king. She didn't support him, but she felt he deserved to be imprisoned, not killed. The Girondists even fought to appeal King Louis' sentence, but the Jacobins went forward with the execution. In August 1793, the Legislative Assembly finally had enough of Marat's violence and extremism. He was put on trial for his involvement in the September massacres. The other Assembly members wanted to indict him. Girondist leader Francois Bouzard was quoted as saying of Marat, The departments will bless the day when you deliver the human race from a man who is a disgrace to it, who has debased public morality, whose soul is full of calumny, and whose whole life is a tissue of crimes. But the public supported Marat, and in the end, he wasn't convicted of any crimes. He went on publishing the Montagnard's beliefs in his newspaper. At the end of May 1793, the Jacobins succeeded in kicking all Girondists out of the National Convention. They did this through protests, petitions, and speeches. 20,000 Jacobins marched to the National Convention to protest the Girondists and threatened to blow up the convention if they didn't get rid of them. The Girondists had been leading the country since 1791. Now their voices would no longer be heard in government. Marat wanted to arrest the deputy Girondists, However, the Jacobins decided to let most of them go. The free Girondists left Paris and went to countryside towns to reconvene. Some of them went to Caen, where Charlotte lived, and began planning to take down Marat. Charlotte heard about the meetings, likely from one of her friends. She attended the meetings under the guise that she needed help from one of the politicians, Charles Barbaroux. Women could not vote at this time, and although some women participated in the murderous mobs, Participating in political meetings was deemed unacceptable. At one of the meetings, the Girondist leaders took a show of hands from men who would be willing to go to Paris to overthrow Marat. 
Murat had recently announced he was making a list of all the Girondist deputies he wanted to arrest and execute. The Girondists wanted to stop him before it was too late. But only 17 men volunteered. Charlotte was angry. She would give anything to help the cause, but she was just a woman. What power did she have? It was then and there that 24-year-old Charlotte Corday decided that she would do it. She would kill Jean-Paul Marat. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll explore Charlotte Corday's solo journey to Paris, her altruistic plan to martyr herself in service to her country, and the bloody aftermath of her decision. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Music